Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hello, Global Marketing Show fans. Thanks for joining us today. We've got Janet Walsh, who is CEO of Birch Treat, and she's a, an adjunct professor at the New York Institute of Technology. And you're in for a treat because she knows her bleep, and she has feet on the ground to launch your company in countries where you need to be. So it's going to be an exciting interview. Hi, Janet. Welcome for, uh, thank you for being here. Hi, Wendy. Thank you very much for having me. It's, I'm thrilled to be here. So you got your start on the HR side of business and really got to be an expert on global HR and then it's expanded from other places. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got started in the global side of HR? Well, I'd spent uh, a lot of time internationally before uh, and in, during the time I was in school. So I worked uh, in school and had traveled a lot and my family's traveled a lot. So from a business perspective, I was kind of familiar with it early on. And I spoke uh, Spanish and some French and Japanese. So when I went to college, I studied um, economics and Japanese and then um, got out of school early and took a job in an operations environment and was responsible for human resources. So the very first thing I did was to be responsible for 20 or 30 people putting together these big uh, projects. And I liked it, but it was 24 seven, you know, seven days a week. So I worked for four months without a day off. And I thought, you know, I have a degree in economics. I, I, I need to be working in a bank where you can, you know, work from nine to five and you never work. On <laughs> right. Wait. Oh, go ahead. So I got a job uh, at a bank and they offered me three different jobs. And uh, the one in uh, benefits sounded very interesting because the, the guy that ran it was uh, had had a heart attack and was out of the office. So I started uh, just cleaning up his desk and looking through stuff and trying to figure out what was there. And um, one thing led to another. So uh, my second job was very uh, kind of uh, global in nature. So I wound up, you know, getting involved and working with the businesses in Canada and Mexico and then overseas. Okay, so go back to, you said when you were young, you had lots of exposure to international. Talk to me about that. Did you live internationally as a child or? Uh, I lived uh, in El Salvador uh, as an exchange student in high school. Uh, so I was there, my, my mom and my parents were very close to a gentleman uh, named Emilcar Segura, who was the founder of Radio Barquisimeto in Venezuela. And he's also known for his innovative work in the, in the radio and entertainment industry. He was a good friend of the family. So we would go to Venezuela and had, had a wonderful time. Just love Venezuela. Drove, drove all the way across Venezuela from uh, Caracas to 
Cucuta and Colombia, and oh, just it was wonderful. How did your parents become friends with him? He had uh, diversified in some business operations, and my mother had taken Spanish and spoke Spanish, so she uh, helped my her uncle, who was the one who was working with him, and he invited my mom and uh, my uh, aunt and uncle and grandparents to Venezuela, and then he invited me, and so we just were close. Okay, so your mom was here in the United States when he was doing business here. She spoke Spanish, ended up getting to help him, and then that's how the the families became involved with each other. Yeah, she took it in school, she, so she had learned Spanish in school, yeah. It's such advantage to be bilingual for all those kids that are, you know, saying, I don't want to learn, or I speak this at home and only English outside. Don't speak it, because look at the opportunities. Okay, so you do an exchange program in high school, and obviously your parents were very open to different cultures, which I'm finding that a lot of people in global business have had some early childhood experience with an international culture that makes them more open. So it's very interesting to hear. So then you go on, so you do the exchange program. You've got a background in Spanish, but you picked Japanese to major in in college. Well, at the time, um, the universities required another language. So I tested out of Spanish and had to take a language in college. So I picked Japanese because while I was in El Salvador, they did quite a bit of business with Japan. So there's kind of a triangle trade going on between uh, the United States, Japan, and uh, El Salvador. And I thought that would be something interesting to study. But I wound up actually getting more involved with the Canadian uh, at the time. From the economics perspective, you had Rene Levesque and the Parti Quebecois was taking off. So uh, that was very interesting. And I wound up you know, doing a lot of uh, study around that particular subject. And as you know, you know we're uh, in the northern part of the U.S. We're you know, right next to Canada. So, you know. You're right. That makes sense. What about this triangle between Japan, the U.S., and Salvador? I had never heard of that before. So what was the connectors there? At the time, I think it was uh, some uh, production activities that were going on. The the Japanese have been involved in Latin America for, for quite some time, obviously. And they were, they ran and had, uh, uh, different types of, uh, at the time it was agricultural products, and they were shipping those products to the U.S. So I thought that was kind of an interesting subject, you know, and uh, thought it would be fun to kind of study that. But then um, that's why I wound up taking Japanese. But but then in college, the Parti Quebecois and all that activity in Canada was going on, and that was about, you know, uh, 150 miles away. So uh, I got more involved in that. Okay, so then you finish up school and you graduate, and this is where your interest in Canada, or was it while you were in school? Well, while I was in school, that was uh, there was a lot of uh, news about that subject at the time. Okay, and so you pick um, economics to major in, but then you get into HR. Well, yeah, again, um, the really nice part about getting into HR is when you have a background in operations or you've been in operations, uh-huh. 
when you go into human resources, you sort of have the perspective of the operating manager. You're not like a staff person who's not, you know, been responsible for the management of a, a production facility. You know, you're responsible for, uh, you know, the, the people, the costs, the supplies, the products, and, you know, the customers. So you have a little different orientation than if you get a degree in sociology and then, you you know, you, you go into human resources and you're focused more on the human dynamic side. So there's all kinds of ways to approach it. I just approached it from, from my background, which was more from the operations side. Okay, and you've got the strong numbers background, so you're understanding what the line managers are trying to do. Yeah. Now, when you're working in those different areas, you're in benefits, you're, you know, in your early company, you, you're working with people who may not have had that early exposure to other countries. What kind of fears did you run into with the company of, people doing international business. Did people come to the company because they weren't afraid of doing international business or did you sometimes run into people who were, were afraid of it and what were those fears? Well, this, um, this is rather more, that, that pertains more to what we're doing now. But at the time, uh, I, I did a, the kind of background that you normally had in doing functional parts of human resources and then responsible for uh, overarching uh, directorship of a, an HR operation and then vice president and things like that. So uh, with respect to people and how they approach the global business side, in some cases, well, in one major case, the, there was nobody in the company uh, uh, that spoke a foreign language. Uh, there was nobody who had really been abroad. So since I, by that time, had, had traveled quite a bit and was fairly useful, uh, they, and I was, uh, you know, single and was willing to go and uh, take off and, and, you know, travel overseas. I, I didn't have kids that I had to worry about, you know, being in school and stuff like that. So uh, I got some things by default and others by design. Okay. Yes, it is. So when you do travel internationally, it can get very hard if you're trying to balance a family and kids. I talked to um, to an earlier uh, guest on the show, and she did international travel. She loves it, hasn't had kids, and said, you know, it, it's work for her lifestyle. So you mentioned the fears come more into what you're doing now. So why don't you tell us about Birch Tree and all this background and experience that you've had with economics and HR and building businesses, how you ended up starting Birch Tree and what you do? Well, I, as for the last 22 years, we've uh, focused on globalizing businesses, globalizing their strategy, their business operations, and, uh, you know, their people. So uh, the company's 22 years old as of the first of the year we have. Ooh, congratulations. Uh, 15 people full-time and part-time. Uh, we have client, we have, we do a lot of business in Atlanta, Denver, and New York, and then we have customers all over. So uh, one of the things that, you know, people, people, their, their business gets very popular and, and they start looking at different markets or different supply chains or uh, different ways to, you know, expand their operations. And 
they may not have had a lot of experience in that area. So what we do is we'll talk to them about their strategy. We'll point out some of the key advantages in their strategy. Uh, we'll help them identify the legal, financial, tax, and HR core infrastructure that they need. And we'll look and work with them to get any type of incentives from the foreign location or the government and or the bilateral chambers. And then we'll uh, operationalize the business. And then once the business is up and running internationally, we'll work with them to develop a bench strength and global business in their staff. So not just, we don't just walk away and leave them, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how uh, taxes get done, how the legal stuff gets done. What do, what do we do in accounting or finance or HR? We work to help those people uh, put together programs to give global skills to, to those folks in the organization. So I've had different people come on and talk about whether they go through a distributor, whether they do employee leasing, whether they do hiring in country, um, even partnerships or, you know, people that are on commissions. So there's so many different ways that you can go. How do you think about which way a company should go when you're advising them? It's all about their strategy. So what is their, what do they want to achieve with this global market entry? And then what are the, the challenges they're going to face and what are the opportunities? So I like to start from the strategic standpoint, what is unique to your business? And then do, you know, there's all kinds of analyses you can do, but do a little can five. Can you give us a two, two company examples that would be very different on what their strategy, maybe a similar industry and two different strategies about how they went about going in? into markets? Sure. We have one client that uh, wanted to set up operations internationally, and they really had no experience in this area at all. So we started by, you know, what is it that you're selling? They were selling a product. And we said, okay. So we did a Porter's Five Forces analysis. You know, what are the, uh, and they had done a little SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threat. But we took that one step deeper. And then because it was very a unique product, we looked at the blue ocean strategy and talked about how do you use a strategy like that to gain a competitive advantage. And then we looked at, um, you know, what, what kind of incorporation uh, activities were they going to need to do? What kind of legal structure were they going to need? Uh, we worked with the local, a very big bank in the country to get them a bank account. Um, they didn't get the bank account fast enough. The bank took a little longer than they, they said they were going to take. So we wound up engaging with an employer of record for two months to pay them. Uh, and then we, uh, we had looked at their tax strategy. So that was set up so they were going to keep the profits of that uh, activity in country. And then we worked with them to hire a general manager, an executive to run the operation who uh, put in place. The, the local accounting firm did all the payroll and the taxes and the filings and the stuff like that. So that worked out very well. It was very efficient. What, it, um, what kind of revenues was the company having before, as a domestic company before they decided to go in? The large, it was, it, you know, it was under a billion. 
So under a billion. So this was a large company. That's why they could take the time to do all the, I mean, you're taking me back to business school when you're talking about Porter's Five Forces and SWAT and Blue Ocean. So very academic approach, but you need to with a company of that size. And for our listeners, I'll put links into those. So if you do want to read them, you can. I'll put them in the summary. Well, you want to make sure that you cover all the eventualities. Now, that they were much under a $1 billion, but we look at companies in terms of, we'd call it a small company if it was under, you know, if it had two people or three people, you know, under $250 million, sort of medium-sized from 250 to, uh, you know, 750 and then large companies kind of a billion and over. But... Uh, in our business, we work with the small and medium-sized businesses to do all the global market entry work for very large multinationals, huge companies that have tens of thousands of people working for them. We work with them to grow the bench strength and global uh, skills in their workforce. So we'll, right now, for example, we have a project underway with the World Trade Center Associations. You can see it at the World Trade Center Atlanta Academy. So what that is, is um, a, a global market entry program that, that teaches business people from the CEO's perspective what it's like to set up a business internationally. So we are kind of unusual in the, in the fact that we work with both small companies as well as very large companies. All right. And so I also talk with a lot of companies that are well under the $250 million that, you know, maybe 5 million, but they're having luck with selling international on their website. Have you seen a change from that over the years with access to the internet? Absolutely. Um, that's really brought the world to everybody's doorstep. And it's also increased the complexity of doing business because you don't want to put your brand out there and not register it properly, for example, in the foreign country, and then find that your, you know, logo is, is you know, taken or, uh, you have issues with respect to your taxes. You send somebody overseas to, you know, help build your business as an expat, and then you wind up creating a foreign tax presence, and uh, now they're going to tax you on the income you made in that country, and that's not what you intended. So it has made it both easier, but also there's a lot more, it's, it's a lot more complex. Okay, so that sounds kind of scary. If I have a $5 million business and I want to go international, right there I've heard all that and I've gone, <gasps> which Americans need more of a push, not more of a fear because less than 1% of U.S. companies export and a lot of them are small and mid-sized. So how could you, what advice could you give to small companies that are starting to see business coming in or are interested in, in growing globally? Well, that's kind of where we anchored our business is that we're a one-stop shop. So if you don't know, if you're a small business, you know, $5 million or, or whatever, and you don't have that experience, but you've got some good opportunities, we'll sit down, talk through it with you and help you put together, you know, a way that you can do it. So you're, you're not getting surprised or losing your shirt or whatever. You shouldn't have to know all that. You know, when you do your taxes at the end of the year, you, you work with somebody who's an expert and they help you through it. You don't necessarily know that there's been a change in the tax law this year. So instead of a 1099 miscellaneous income, there's another form that you have to file. Uh, so, that's kind of where we come in for the small and medium-sized business. We 
bolt on to their operation. We serve as your subject matter experts and we help you get through this, you know, the tough patch so you can go on and make money. Okay. So you really can work with those small companies all the way up to doing the full MBA analysis of a large company where there are more moving parts. We've been in business for 22 years. I'd say about 30% of our our businesses are the very small, uh, you know, businesses, uh, and they've done uh, they've done very well, which is really nice to see. And then, you know, maybe another 30% are kind of the medium sized, and uh, you know, 30, 40% uh, are the big businesses who just want you know one specific aspect. Okay. Now I had asked earlier and you said, oh, that's more of what I run into now. So how about fears? Small, medium, big size, what kind of fears do the executives have when they're looking at doing international business? Well, I think the bravest people I know are folks who say, I want to sell my product in the UK, or I want to have manufacturing done in China or Mexico. You know, those people are brave. You know, anytime you set off with your assets to go to a foreign location and do business, you've got to have, you've got to have guts, as they say. So I, I think those people are brave. Now, one of the one of the things, however, is just as we said before, I mean, if you're going into a new market that you've not had any experience with, obviously, just the legal financial tax and all that sort of stuff can be very intimidating. Um, it, 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 you can lose your shirt. You can lose your business. You can, you know, lose everything. So, and, and your reputation. So, you know, it's really important that you gather the information or at least you work with somebody who has the information to help you. And one of the issues that I see is that companies will turn to their tax or their or legal providers for advice on a global market entry. And that's, that's a good start. But those functions change internationally. We think we know what a lawyer does. We know what a tax guy does. We know what an HR person does. Those kinds of roles change dramatically overseas. So in a foreign country, what you think is a normal activity for an HR person, you may wind up actually getting your company committed to a tax position. Mm. Um, so, you know, I like to use the pony analogy. We all know what a pony looks like. You know, it's got four legs and a tail. It's short, kind of cute, has usually an interesting personality. And, uh, you know, if I told you here's a pony, you, you would know the pony may come in a couple of different co colors, but you, you know what a pony is. But when you go overseas that and you say, I'm going to show you a pony, you might show up with an elephant. It's got four legs and a tail and ears, and, um, but it looks a lot different than a pony. So if your HR operation in the U.S. is a pony, uh, overseas in France, it may look like an elephant. So, what a great you know, analogy. <laughs> you, know, you, really, you really need to be aware of that, that it may do some of the things that you wanted it to do, but it may do some other things that you didn't know that it was going to do for you. And the tax and the HR, uh, the way the, the taxes are determined based on the, the people you have and what the people do in a foreign country, that's an easy one to use as an example. 
So it's so interesting because I come at it from the whole marketing and communications aspect. So I hear like the number one fear on that side is definitely not knowing the language and the culture. Yet you're talking about the whole other side of the HR problems you can run into if you don't think in advance about what you're going to do. So how much do these overlap? Well, it's more than just HR. I mean, it's, uh, it's the, your whole business. HR uh, taxes, right, yeah. But, but from the perspective of, uh, you know, marketing, um, from a cultural perspective, that may have an influence over how you present your product, how you put it together, and how you sell it. But from the structure of the business, how you're working to put it together, you know, it's all about the money. So if you're going to talk to a distributor in a foreign country, culture may have less of an impact on that relationship that you develop. So, for example, I led the state of Georgia's first economic development trip to Cairo, uh, and I did it through the World Trade Center. I was on the board of the World Trade Center in Atlanta. We had a number of companies there, and we uh, decided that we were going to put together a uh, program with um, – I think it was the Chamber of Commerce in Cairo. So I volunteered to lead the expedition. So I had six or, no, I'm sorry, there's eight or 10 different companies. I took all their materials and I arranged to meet with the business people at the, uh, uh, over, over in Cairo at the Chamber of Commerce, the American Egyptian Chamber of Commerce. And I would, talk about each of these businesses. Well, one of the businesses was Home Depot. One of the businesses was uh, a big manufacturing company. And so, of course, in terms of timing, wound up doing this in the middle of Ramadan. Um, mm. So that, and of course, you know, it's Egypt and it's me and I'm, you know, uh, a woman. And, you know, I didn't find any issues in this particular leading this expedition and it was just me people were extremely kind to me they were very focused on doing business they didn't particularly care what you know what I looked like all they knew and cared about was that you know here's somebody coming from a location that has is looking to partner with people like you and we'd like to talk to you about that so it went off without a hitch and some of the folks I guess are still uh, doing business with with them today so oh that's fantastic okay so that's a good reminder because I hear a lot of people say stay open stay curious stay interested and you and there's a recognition that the other side is is open curious and interested because everybody it all comes back to the money if you play, uh, yeah, it comes back. Grow yeah, something. Yeah. It comes back to the money. But I will say, having uh, traveled a lot and liking history and you know economics and I like horses and dogs and stuff mm -hmm. like that and cooking, you know. So all those things, uh, particularly in a foreign culture, if you're interested in that, it makes a a massive difference in how people respect you. In Japan, for example, I could speak Japanese, so the people really appreciated that. But on the weekend, um, instead of leaving on the three o'clock flight from Narita, Tokyo, 
and and working like heck to get out of there by you know Friday afternoon, which made people feel like you didn't like them because it would be like Wendy, I can't talk anymore. I've got to get the, I got to get out of here. I, you know, the, and you're like, well, you know, this is kind of a beautiful country. I mean, too bad you got to run off. And I would spend the weekend and go and travel around Japan and go look at things and talk to people. So when I came back the next time, I'd talk about what a wonderful time I had here or there. Or, you know, I went to Ashinoko and saw the hot springs and on and on and on. And people were like, you really like Japan. It's like, well, it's beautiful. I've had a good time, you know. So I think that's, that's where the cultural piece comes in. If you can appreciate that when you're working with your staff or your employees or people internationally, that they really appreciate that. What are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen companies make when they've expanded? Not um, understanding the legal, financial, tax, and HR infrastructure. Uh, just not recognizing that you know, it, how to, the process for setting up a business, um, that can be extremely expensive. Do you ever work with people and recommend that they go through distributors? Um, a lot of people are already going through distributors. So yeah, I think that's a, a, a good solution. But at a certain point in time, you know, the distributor is going to take a cut. And depending on how much margin you've got in that business for that product, it may be more efficient for you not to use a distributor. But yes, I think distributors, you know, importing, exporting, using a distributor, those are all the steps, you know, uh, that you have as options when you, you set up your business internationally. Okay. And is there any sorts of companies, is it certain products or manufacturers, you know, industrial products, business to business services? Are there any, you know, companies that like... Sh that have a higher success going international? Is it for every industry, I guess I'm trying to ask? Well, I, that's a tough question to answer. I, I don't know the answer to that. I'd, I'd have to do some research around that. When I look back at our, the kinds of clients we've had over the years, they've just run the gamut. I think there are things ebb and flow. So as the technology and green energy has become more efficient, you mm -hmm. see more and more companies involved in that, particularly in Germany, uh, Ireland. Uh, you've seen in the services side of things, you've seen in Latin America, in Chile, in uh, Bolivia, Ecuador, you've seen innovation centers pop up where they incubate ideas of uh, new businesses and help those companies uh, get up and running. Um, so I think it goes, it, it depends on the, the way technology is interfacing with the, the, that particular type of uh, business product or service. And then you start to see it expand and, and go in different places. Okay, that's really interesting because I am, I don't know if there's been an explosion of innovation centers or just I've tapped into more of a network of them, but I've seen that more and more around the world. And we've got a really good one up in New England that focuses on the green energy and they're, they're yep. doing a really good job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, and, and those are nice, particularly if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience and it's helpful 
Uh, sometimes the innovation centers, they'll give you an office or a desk in a communal office. They'll give you uh, meetings with people that can, you know, like marketing people that can help you identify the market. They'll have speeches. People come in and talk about the legal issues. You'll have people come in from a foreign country and talk about, you know, if you want to sell your product in you know, Germany, here's, here's how we can help you. So the innovation, the innovation centers, they can also talk about how do you brand your product, market, uh, register the trademarks and things like that. So they can be, they can be very helpful. Yes, yes, they really can. And they seem to be well connected in with each other too, and know what each other's strengths are and what the right ones are for each company. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so you were talking about marketing and bringing speakers in and connections. And so, of course, all of that leads me to think about language. What are you running into with language, with how people are translating their tax or um, how they're speaking or how they're doing their marketing? What, what, what multilingual needs are they having? Well, I, you know, it, it is useful to speak another language, whether it's just at a conversational level. I don't know too many people who are going to, you know, take their language skills and, and put together a legal contract. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to putting together documents for the business, certainly going through a law firm that has a depth and scope in that foreign location are, uh, is very important. Uh, from a language perspective, also from a marketing and branding perspective, you want to make sure that your products, you know, attributes are appropriately displayed. Uh, and you don't, so for example, you, you wouldn't be um, using the wrong kind of uh, approach or descriptor to, to talk about your business. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's certainly something we get into a lot is anything that has to be accurate. I mean, Google Translate is great these days for you get an email in and you're trying to figure out if it has any relevance to your business. You know, you can pop it in and see and go, oh, yeah, no, this is just junk or hmm, maybe this is something I should reply to. But it, when it comes to legal contracts or, you know, employee handbooks or marketing and branding, that's that's the angle that we come in on because it still has to be high quality. Oh, yeah. When you think about promoting the company brand internationally, you're yeah. talking about the website that you're going to use. So here's a foreign website that you're going to market your product or your product's going to reside at. You're going to have to translate all that content. You're going to have to use local contact information and language. So you're going to want to have the right kinds of uh, words around that. If you talk about your brand in a foreign country, you're talking about, you know, uh, you're telling a story like Chanel, for example, the, 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 the designer, uh, Chanel has a, uh, uh, you know, they tell a story about the brand and what is the, what does the brand make you feel? What does the brand do for you? What does the brand represent? And that's all got to be in the right, the right language. And then, you know, online and offline advertising and things like that, or if you sponsor events, the language that you use in all of those situations to promote your brand internationally has to be just right. So that's where a translator comes in. You know, Google Translator, a lot of my students, I have a lot of Chinese executive MBA students in my classes, 
and they have a tendency to write their papers in Chinese and then run it through Google Translate. <laughs> oh no, really? It doesn't always it doesn't always have the result that they were looking for. I mean, after a while, it, I, you know, I don't speak Chinese, and it and you know, Japanese is hard enough, but uh, that's a that that the Google Translate is good, but it's not perfect. Oh my goodness. And so do they hand that into you after it's gone through Google Translate? Sometimes. Oh, that's going to be painful for you to correct. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, these are these are professional business people that have experience and, you know, I'm impressed that they, you know, do such a good job with this, you know, going from English to Chinese. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I say anybody who's coming over here in English as a second language and going to school, they're already so much more amazing. Because if you think about yourself going to some place where your language skills aren't good and trying to write a paper. Um, and so that's true. So their executives, their business, so their concepts are going to be very high, and they may be able to look at the English and make corrections. So it's easy enough to read. Yeah, no, a global, somebody that you can work with uh, at, with Global Translate is critical. Yes, yes, to get it accurate. Now, what about the employee communications? Like if you've got headquarters back here in the U.S. and you go into a country and you hire a bunch of people, not all of them are going to be bilingual. So what do you see in that area of internal communications? Well, uh, it, communicating with your employees so that you're all on the same page about your brand, your objectives, you know, where you're going as a company, that's really important. One of the things that you can do, of course, is if you've got a lot of people in a foreign country or you're starting to grow, we recommend you know, an employee handbook both for the foreign location and your parent company. And that way you can harmonize some of the things that you feel are important that define your brand, maybe how you treat customers, how you respond. But also it's good to remember that in a lot of locations, the information that you give and receive about employees, about uh, you know your uh, customers, a lot of that personal data requires you to have structures in place to to manage that and work with that. You know they call that data privacy, data um, protection, things of that nature. So it's very important to be aware of that, and that's part of your whole communication. Uh, you know, structure when you're, when you're working internationally is, you know, you really have to think through how am I going to communicate with people, my customers, how am I going to get information? How am I going to share information? What language, what do I want to convey? And do I have the right technological and infrastructure systems to protect that data and use it properly? Right, right. Okay, so you were talking a lot about information and knowledge, and you, we, we touched on it briefly at the beginning of our conversation, but I want to go back to this. You have launched the World Trade Center in Atlanta, um, their academy, about how to go global. Can you tell me more about that? Because that sounds like it's a tremendous resource. 
Well, it's uh, something we've uh, worked with the World Trade Center on for the last uh, couple of years, and we just launched it a couple of weeks ago. But it's the congratulations. World Thank you. It's the World Trade Center Atlanta Academy. Uh, we are uh, have written and produced the program on global market entry. So the perspective is from a CEO. So we've worked with business leaders. A lot of uh, executives, some 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 CEOs, companies, small, medium, and large, uh, and put together a training program. It shows you how to take your business global. It goes into some detail about these issues, so that you're aware of what is required when you want to compete internationally. And We've had a lot of bilateral chamber participation, government, uh, talk a little bit about the different kinds of government support programs. And it's, uh, people can see it if they go to the World Trade Center Atlanta uh, Academy website, and that's, uh, you know, they'll see the, the outline. There's four modules, a uh, module around uh, the strategy of global business, one around uh, the economics and the finance, how do, you, how do you get the money to do all this, uh, one around the corporate infrastructure, and one around operations. So it consists of a workbook as well as a, a series of, uh, a, a syllabus that consists of a series of white papers, interviews, uh, webinars, podcasts, all those things that, that add and illuminate the material in the workbook. So is it something that you have to be in Atlanta to do, or is it all virtual? No, it's, all, it's online asynchronous. So you can log on, you can take it whenever you want. You can take one module or all four modules. So it's unbounded in that regard. Now, it seems to me the fifth category would be marketing and communications. That's in the operations module. So we do address marketing. We have, in fact, uh, the chief uh, senior, he just, uh, he just uh, took another job, the senior vice president of, executive vice president for branding for Cigna. Uh, he has just, uh, Stephen Cassells, we just taped a program with him on promoting your company brand internationally, which was very interesting. Oh, I bet it would be. So that's all in, in module four, marketing, branding, that's just communications. Okay, okay. I'm glad to hear that because I was waiting for that. And <laughs> I just wrote a book on global marketing. It's called The Language oh. of Global Marketing. And it's at the publisher and layout now. I have the, I have the cover. I have, yeah, so I'm waiting oh, for the yeah. final proof. So, you know, when I, when I look down, I come at it from a very biased view. So I'm glad. That's exciting. Yes, 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 yes. I'm, I'm thrilled. It'll be coming out probably uh, March, April time period. Yeah. Okay. So that sounds like it's quite an accomplishment. And I'm so glad to hear that it's virtual. I'll add that to my um, resources when people are asking about it, because I think that's a, a tremendous opportunity. Well, it also works for, you know, if you're a very large multinational and you're promoting, say, the vice president of sales for the U.S., they're now being promoted to vice president of sales for North America, Canada, and Mexico, then, you know, this if the person doesn't have any global experience, this will give them this be a, the college education they need. And then also the, some universities are using this as a certification program. So when they send their, uh, they have a 
a degree in international business, instead of just learning about, you know, the theory of global trade, this shows you how to actually set up a business abroad and manage it. Now, in operation, I think I was just assuming that, but I probably should ask, too, does that talk about um, working cross-cultural and diversity and inclusion? Yes. And, and yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Because that's so, such a key part. There's there, well, that, that also comes into the, the HR side of things. So right. there are several modules on HR, compensation, training, mark, uh, you know, the strategy of global HR and things like that. So the opera, the, we looked at this from the way a senior executive would set up their business. What's my strategy? How am I going to fund this? And, you know, where do I get the money? Can I get any special incentives? And then, okay, now I need to set up the business. What do, how, how do the legal financial tax and HR, how does that infrastructure integrate with each other? And then operationally, what are the, the, the 10 or 12 areas that I need to manage to run this business. You know, you've got risk management, technology, communications, marketing, branding, and so forth. You know, some HR uh, operations, payroll, and things like that. Okay. Right now I understand it. It's rather than the functional groups being the modules, it really is the different things you have to do and, across going international and four is kind of running the domestic business but the other considerations across the functional groups it's it's running the internet it's the international business what are what are these right. functions look like in the international business right 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 so you'd already in operations you'd already have all that in your domestic now you need to take that but modules one two and three are the additional considerations you need to do first well, yeah, because you think about it, if say I've got two kinds of products, I've got, I'm selling bottled water and I'm selling tea. Uh -huh. So I may find myself, um, you know, from a strategy and an economic perspective, maybe the tea, uh, I can't make money at this. There's, the margins are too small, the costs are too big, but I can make a ton of money with the water. So as I go through this as an executive, I think, what's the strategy? How do I put this together? You know, what are the economics? How do I put it together? You may stop at some point and say, you know, it's not going to be worth it. Um, so, but you know, for if you are, you know, globalizing your water, for example, then you may find that, okay, now all of a sudden, uh, I'm going to need to have all these other issues, you know, all these other considerations. For example, if you're going to set up a business in Japan, a lot of people don't know, A, they drive on the other side of the road than they do in the US. So maybe your vehicles aren't going to work quite right, or you have to change the way you're using them. And two, they have a different electrical system. You know, so you're not, if you're sending an expat over there that has all these electronics, they are not going to be able to just plug them into the wall. So, you know, th that, but that you wouldn't need to know that necessarily as you were thinking about the strategy. It's when you start thinking about moving the people around that now you start to get into the nitty gritty. I have heard so many stories about even trying to sell clothing international or shoes was an example that you know people's feet were wider in a country and the and the executive was just like well sell it to skinny feet people <laughs> well, well, it, it works this over here as well how many times have you gone into a store and looked at a shirt that's marked as extra large 
and you're looking at this shirt and you're going, I don't know where this was made, but if this is extra large, uh, you know. If <laughs> Newborns could wear small. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, I do remember that over in China. It's just, you know, I'm 5'8". I'm a pretty tall woman, and I'm athletic, so I'm not, you know, poker thin, but trying to find clothes over there. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Just T-shirt sizes. (laughs) Yeah, so it it is funny. There is that customization that comes in. All right, let's switch over to some more um, personal questions. You know I got to ask. What's your favorite foreign word? <laughs> I don't think you can say it on this uh, uh, podcast, but uh, and it's uh, not Spanish and it's not Japanese, from what yeah, I remember. It's French. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, you can say it. <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, let's just say um, no, Incroyable. You know, it's so funny. A lot of people's favorite word comes from French. (laughs) My French, when I speak French, the French people look like they've seen a very bad auto accident and and ask me to please speak English. (laughs) And I I continue to torture them, which may be why the border between New York and Canada is closed at the moment. I, I'm dogged, if if nothing else. But uh, it's it's a beautiful language and so expressive, and you just it has such a depth that uh, it's good to try to to do well at it. Yes, yes, it is. It is a good language. I took it through high school and college that oh, in Spanish. So. Oh, well, you know, you have to use it to keep it fresh. And even though I'm in the language industry, business is done with our interpreters in English. Um, So occasionally I'll get to practice or I'll come across somebody that doesn't speak English. And, you know, so Spanish, French, and Italian are my three languages. So I love to hear them. (laughs) Well, I speak uh, Spanish uh, pretty much every day, every other day, uh, and dealing with lots of people. Uh, the gentlemen that take care of the horses at the stable speak Spanish and mm. we talk in Spanish. They, they're from uh, Chiquimula in Guatemala. Uh, so we've had some great talks and they're very nice. And it's, it's just nice to be able to keep up, you know, your language. And one of the other ladies speaks French. So she's taken to running off when she sees me now. So <laughs> have to speak to me in French, but I, I catch her. I surprise her in the tack room and you know. <laughs> let loose on your French, huh? Easy. Uh-huh. Me, we. Bonjour. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. How about your favorite vacation? Oh well, I I will say there are in a, in terms of vacation, I, I like to do, I like to work, I like what I do. So my what my idea of a good vacation is to go somewhere and do something, and then take a few days off, and get to know the the people in the country. So uh, my top two destinations, and I I've been on the ground in eighty one different countries. So my top two would be Sydney, Australia, which. Ooh. I think uh, is a must-see destination. If you haven't been to Sydney, I highly recommend it. And not just Sydney, but also Melbourne and uh, Hobart in Tasmania. The Salamanca Market on Saturday is a wonderful place to be. 
Uh, and then the second uh, would be in Istanbul. Uh, if you have not uh, gone to the uh, covered bazaar in Istanbul uh, to look at the things that are for sale, and you should treat yourself and buy a rug. Uh, if, you, if you express the slightest interest in a rug, they will shut the store, they will bring in tea, a gentleman brings it in in a little tray, and they will start to talk to you about these different rugs. And there's a whole dance around buying the rug. Uh, I bought a rug. I was, you know, went through all this process, had a wonderful time. I was, I was, you know, it was great. And the gentleman I was talking to, you know, spoke English very well. And I asked him where he, used, where he learned his English and, you know, where he went to school. And he said, you know, the University of Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> gone to Wharton Business School. So there I am arguing or talking about this rug and, you know, should I buy this rug or that rug? And it's really too expensive. And I really want this rug, but I'm trying to get him to reduce the price by looking at this rug and it turns out to be from Wharton. Wharton, you were toast. He was a master negotiator yeah. and he he was bicultural. So he, he, he knew. It's so funny because I just interviewed Jeff Grody and um, he'll be on a, a podcast upcoming podcast and his favorite place was Istanbul yeah. it was oh, one of his, so and there's also a spice market just down the street I didn't go to I, I didn't have enough time to go to the spice market but the, the people in both of those locations uh, are obviously very international particularly Istanbul it's the center of you know east and west and it's you know obviously that's it, it it's made its fortune as a country so to speak by being, you know, between the center of center of commerce in, in right. that area, so they're used to meeting and talking to foreign business people. It's really, really, really nice. I really liked it a lot. The people were, and the food was delicious in both those locations. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I've only been to the airport in Istanbul when we were on the way to Greece. Um, and it was just fascinating to me there because they had the prayer rooms right in the airport. And so it was, oh, yeah. it was yeah. fun to go by that. And just I was with my two kids who were teenagers at that point. And so just uh, love that. And looking out the windows, I'm like, oh, I need to get back here someday. So now yeah. it is definitely on the top of the list because two people in a row have just said Istanbul. <laughs> so how about your favorite cross-cultural uh, experience, most rewarding or most memorable? Well, I don't, I don't know. This was sort of interesting. I, I'm an amateur archaeologist, so I uh, am uh, on the board of the Explorers Club and have found and excavated uh, an archaeological site. So I'm very interested in that archaeology, paleontology, that, that area. So I was working for, this was 25 years ago, working for a company and I was sent to Mexico to set up uh, the operations. And it was kind of a last minute thing. And I didn't have enough time to get a business visa. So I went with my tourist visa. And this is, uh, you should never do this. So I, f the flight is horribly delayed. Uh, lots of storms. We finally, we, we wind up, you know, having to, to stop in a, some Texas city close to the border. And then at two in the morning, we finally take off. So we land in Mexico City like 3.30. It was very early in the morning. So uh, we 
go through immigration and the, and I'm very tired. And the guy asks me, you know, is this your first visit to Mexico? No, I've been here a lot. And he goes, well, uh, you're going to, you're going to have a lot of business to do. And I said, no, I just have to do a few things. And he goes, where's your business visa? And I said, I don't have a business visa. And he said, step over here. So I got caught right off the bat by, you know, not having a business visa. And I didn't have it because we were in a hurry to, to get all this stuff done. And I didn't have time to get one. So he's, they sent me off to the, the side and I had to use the ladies room, I guess. And so they said, okay. And it, it's kind of a holding area. So I go to the ladies room and the most, it, it, what was so amazing is in the ladies room, the walls in this uh, facility were, were made of cut uh, fossilized uh, rock. So you could stand there and you could look all around and you could see all the shells and all the little things that were embedded in this stone. And it was just a solid wall. And, you know, I, I'm in there looking and I'm thinking to myself, I've never seen anything like this. It's so tall and it's so beautiful. And I'm thinking, why would you put this in a restroom and, you know, in a holding area in the Mexico City airport? And I just thought it was stunning. So they came back and they said, well, um, you don't have the right visa, so we're going to expel you. You have to, you have to come before the judge uh, tomorrow. Uh, and I said, okay. And so I come back the next morning. Um, the people in front of me are Japanese and the judges eviscerates them. Just, you know, the woman is crying and I'm like, you know, this, this is not good. And so he says, to, I, it's my turn. And he says to me, he says, well, he said, you don't have the right visa. And he said, uh, we have, we can, you can pay $300 uh, and, and we'll let you in. And I said, um, I don't have three, $300. And he said, then you're just gonna, well, he said, then you're going to just have to stay. And I said, fine. I said, um, that would be great. I love Mexico. Um, I don't want to go back home. I think this is great. I just didn't stay. And he goes, well, what do you like about Mexico? I said, well, the food is delicious. The people are lovely. The horses are beautiful. Um, I can buy a new saddle for a third of the price, you know, in the U.S. Um, I, you know, you've got all these beautiful things in the restrooms, even in the holding area are stunning with all the fossils. And I'm going on and on and on. And he's just looking at me like this. And he goes, and then he's silent. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to jail, you know? And, and he says, he, he goes, Mexico needs more women like you. And he says, I'm going to give you a 90 day multiple entry business visa. And I, you know, all this is in Spanish, which I, I think that's what he said. I mean, uh, it's, you know, you, you try to conjugate all these, these verbs correctly. And, you know, he's very nice. And uh, so he, so he, does, he said, he says, this is what we're going to do. And I said, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And he goes, now, where are you staying? <laughs> and, and I thought, I wonder what that question means. And I, so I, I told him, I as said, as a young oh. woman alone in Mexico. And <laughs> I said, well, I said, I'm at the Hilton. 
And he goes, oh, okay, what are you doing this evening? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to have to do this and that. And he goes, oh, I'm going to stop by the Hilton. And I said, well, thank you, Judge. And I wasn't staying at the Hilton. I was staying, you know, up the other side of town. But, but that, was, that was kind of interesting. So, I, I, so you exactly read what his intentions were and were smart enough to say. Well, I don't know. I mean, I could have been the loser. He, he was a charming man. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's always good to explore cross-cultural, you know, uh, relationships. Oh, I am completely fine with that. I was just a little, little worried about the judge and the, you know, visa and control of your life. And, I mean, he could have been drop-dead gorgeous, the perfect guy, but there's so many things in there. <laughs> but, but that was kind of interesting. But, you know, it did hammer home. And I tell this to our clients and people that make sure you have the right visa because you do not, not all jails in Mexico or holding areas have beautiful, you know, fossils on the wall. You know, you, you want to, and that, that worked out all right. Uh, I think they were just trying to make a point that, you know, people need to use business visas, but uh, again, just like anybody else, you're in a hurry, you're trying to get stuff done. You've got a lot on your plate and, it you know, takes four or five days, 10 days to get a business visa if you're not, you know, at the embassy, you know, all that sort of stuff. Right, right, right. Yes, a good reminder and probably more important now than 25 years ago because it seems like having the right visa could, could get you into more trouble. And also good to, to be able to speak a foreign language well enough to talk to a judge, make an explanation that, you know. Absolutely. What final recommendations do you have for our listeners? Well, I think, you know, uh, we, we're globalizing, uh, globalization is a, a trend that's going to increase. Uh, even for, you know, we had a bit of a retrenchment, but I, I think the, the, the world is just a smaller and smaller place and people are buying so much stuff online and, you know, your products are getting sold all over the world that if you want to be competitive, being able to sell and manage in the global environment is going to be important to your success, you know, for most businesses. So, but be prepared. Uh, take a take a training program, you know, like the World Trade Center program, or, you know, make sure that you've got people that you can turn to, you know, spend an hour talking to them and find out what it is you need to know, or where are the touch points. But don't just assume you're, you're going to talk to, you know, uh, somebody who's been there maybe once or, you know, have one conversation with a functional specialist, and now you're going to be able to to do, do, to be successful. You have to compete with a lot of other companies who have good information about their global market entry. And to be competitive, you want to make sure that you understand, you know, uh, all the things you need to know so that you can operationalize your strategy for financial gain. I think that's excellent. I think that's such good advice. And this has been such a pleasure talking to you and hearing these great stories. Where can people reach you if they uh, want to hire you or ask you questions or learn more about you? Oh, thanks. You can uh, reach us at, uh, you reach me at Walsh at birchtreeglobal.com. Our website's birchtreeglobal.com. We're on uh, Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, 
and uh, Twitter. So uh, there's a number of places to reach us and, and our website. Good. So Janet, you can reach her at Walsh at birchtreeglobal.com. All right. Thank you so much. Well, this has been such a fabulous uh, learning opportunity for everyone, no matter what size business you're on. There is some common themes that you need to do. We'll put links down to some of the analysis that she talked about um, and to the um, World Trade Center Academy. So you can reach that if you want to go through that. Uh, if you learned something today or had a chuckle or enjoyed one of Janet's stories like I did, please tell somebody about this podcast. You can find it on all your favorite places to listen. It's on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google. You can even uh, find the website. Just go to theglobalmarketingshow.com and you can listen straight from there. So thank you so much and we'll talk to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now. <laughs>